0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the musician, designer, photographer and filmmaker. It is Naomi Yang, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. During the late 80s, early 90s, she was part of Galaxy 500 went on to be part of Damon and Naomi, also had another band between that called The Magic Hour, has gone on to work in photography, graphic design and publishing. And has recently brought out a film, which um, we'll talk about towards the end of this interview. But um, and also, I'll give you the link in the little bio in the notes below. But anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interest, of interesting but casual chat, we get down to an exciting subject. That was the early formative years. Naomi, it's over to you.
1: Um, I think it was. I was in. Architecture school, and I was listening to, um, to Joy Division and New Order on endless repeat. Right. Uh, Really, just realized I was listening to the, the bass playing, and meanwhile Damon and Dean, who had had a band in college that had broken up, um, were trying to start a new band, and they were looking for a bass player, and I was like, I. I'll do it. I'll try. (laughs) I I think I love bass. And so (laughs) I think that was, I mean, I'd always loved music, but I don't think I ever thought I would be a performing musician. I mean, I've always been played classical and not very well music as a kid because I couldn't read music well. Um, But once I joined a band and it was, everything was by ear, I was so comfortable. And so I think it was, um, it certainly was, listening, realizing how much I was enjoying other people's bass lines. So I was listening to the Cure and I don't know. Yeah. I think it was, it was that moment where I was like, well, I'll try in that grand punk rock tradition of, I don't know how to play, but I'll try this.
0: I'll give it a go, which is always good, which is good. But what were you kind of listening to when you were kind of very young? You know, what, did your parents have any musical influence? Oh
1: or, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there was always music in our house, but it was classical music. So right. it was like, Bach and um Chopin and Mozart N- nothing too really bombastic and I mean it's kind of funny it was more the like sad quiet end of classical mm-hmm. music and you know m- madrigals and you know uh early music um so it was definitely on the the melancholy end of the classical music spectrum but yes. they only had like one um pop record and they they just had like the Beatles white album Right. So I used to listen to that over and over again because, you know, I knew that classical music wasn't hip. And oh. I wanted. It. <laughs> and then I joined a, a record club um, in adolescence, early adolescence, like, you know, like nine or 10 years old, which was this thing that I think a lot of American kids at the time joined it was Columbia House and you paid like some small amount initially. And they, they sent you like 20 records and it was like this – Amazing thing. Um, and then and so it was a way that I got a lot of sort of like classic American standard music, like excellent of the time, like Fleetwood Mac and um what else did I get from that? Pete
0: Frampton. Did you get the Pete Frampton Comes Live album?
1: No, I don't think I did. Oh right. Boston. <laughs> um, what about Boston? No, 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 no. I wasn't into that, like more heavy, I was more like um um like uh well Buffy St Marie but that was earlier that was from a a school um a school teacher played that for us and I love that um but it was more like um John Denver and um which is kind of like maybe like an embarrassing confession like oh this is what I was listening to is like all the soft rock yeah I I, I (laughs) I, I, I quite enjoy
0: soft rock actually because I think So I was talked about, you know, the world of um, glam, which was probably on Top of the Pops at that kind of stage of my life. And Thursday, Top of the Pops was a massive thing. And also the top, top 20 or top 40. And those kind of hits like... Ballroom Blitz by Sweet or, you know, even Alice Cooper. No,
1: you were cool. You were were cooler. You were cooler. No, but I was much more. I was like, like, like Jim Croce. I was like Jim Croce and crying and stuff.
0: (laughs) Right. But I do remember because my mum, who, you know, I was when I was at home, she was a housewife, would have Radio 2 on, which was this kind of, I suppose, soft rock and and Uh all pop. And that, and mostly, it was kind of quite naff, and you know, and they were playing songs from decades before, which always seemed like from Max Bygraves and and those kind of artists. But there was elements that I do remember listening to the Carpenters and being very mesmerised by the work of the Carpenters, mm-hmm. and then Bert Bacharach and those two, right? Especially, right. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Bert was good, and um, but you know, the Carpenters was just amazing. I yeah. just was kind of blown by them, yeah. and I did love John Denver because leaving on a. On a jet plane and Annie's song. I mean, that kind of romantic melancholia, you know, for some reason, at the age of ten, really appealed right. to me. And right. then there was okay. people like Nilsons. You know, I can't live if living is without you. And again, that uh-huh. was on the radio. And I remember thinking, oh. <laughs> or Seasons in the Sun. Remember that? That was yes, the element. yes. Terry Jacks? Is that Terry yes, Jacks? That's the one. Yes, I couldn't remember. Yeah, that. no,
1: I like that. But that we were younger. We were, and that was like it was like seven or eight, right?
0: Yes. We
1: were a little <laughs> young. But then I hit high school. And in high school, um, you know, I went to high school in New York City and you know, so it was the late 70s and early 80s, and there was punk rock. And um, you know, some friends in high school were, you know, listening to punk rock and going to punk rock shows, you know, or well, I guess, you know, even earlier shows in New York. Mm. And so that's when I learned about, you know. Much
0: better music. Yes. Well, I th- but but funny enough, you know, because my because my my parents were quite had, were very working class. So I think when they got married in the late fifties, they kind of you know talking to them, you know, they sold everything. And then in the early seventies, that's when they bought a record player, and they had a couple of albums, including the Carpenters and Roger Whittaker, who I also liked. There's I I don't know of... who he is. Oh, Roger Whittaker. God, there's a song which is just beautiful, which I'll have to say you. Is he you English?
1: Link. Is he British? I think he's South African,
0: actually. Okay, I don't. Uh, he think you did. Know him, but... He did a couple of records which were really po- popular during the seventies. I'm Leaving Durham Town, and there was another one which the lyrics are just absolutely stunning. And I'll, I'll send you a link because it is, you know, th- those. I, I I don't know much of the work of him, but there was a couple of singles. But um, yes, but then I had an older brother who was seven years older than me, who I thought oh. was really cool. And he introduced me or he didn't introduce me. He he was into prog rock and I would sneak yeah. into his room when he wasn't in because he'd forbid me to go into his room <laughs> and play these Yes and Genesis albums and Wishbone Ash and Barclay James Harbus. The most See, now I think they really are uncool compared to the Carpenters, but I now know the, <laughs> the solo work of Rick Wakeman quite well. And, you know, I wish I didn't. But he he was like, no, punk's bad. No, They, they I want to hear, you know, slightly classically, you know, Motivated, you know, prog rock by these rather pretentious public school boys. That's a sweeping statement, I know, but you know, it was very over the top, wasn't it, and bombastic with keyboards and bass solos and the drummer who had to, you know, have his Persian carpet, you know, brought to him <laughs> and put on on the stage, you know. So yeah, that was kind well, of was
1: certainly like a you know response to that, right.
0: It was a big response, wasn't it? Really, and the cocaine West Coast pop of uh, America as well. So um, yes. So look, that's very exciting. Did you have any older brothers or sisters who? who no,
1: I didn't have the advantage of having you know a, an older brother or sister that could, you know,
0: direct you or misdirect interesting you. Interesting
1: music. Yeah, I mean, there that was always that's always such a, a lucky thing that people that get into interesting music because yes, they have the older brothers um yeah i did i had i had a younger brother but he was only interested in classical music and you know like i would play the clash or the sex pistols and he would be like banging on my wall like shut that stuff up that's not music (laughs) you know so it was kind of he did not appreciate you know all this you know fabulous music i was bringing into the house
0: I do remember. I think it was Susan from the band of band of Susans. I think she'd sort of had her whole sort of childhood and and sort of early adult life was kind of going to college doing classical music and then what? sort of went. Ooh, I'm quite into sort of this avant garde noise and rock so um mm-hmm. it, i think it does kind of have an interesting effect so look new york in the late 70s i've done quite a lot of interviews with people during that period so was that was that the world of cbgbs and max's Kansas city and and sort of johnny thunders and the new york dolls and suicide did you yeah did but you... i was
1: i was too young i was i mean i you know there there was the drinking age was was uh, 18 and i you know i was 13 so yes that was all happening but, yes. I, you know, you know, we we couldn't take advantage of that until.
0: The... But when we got to 1980, a great year, um, we were 16. I know it's great. I can say we and it's true. Um, that was kind of like we'd sort of in in what well, the year before, you know, Thatcher gets into power in this country. I guess you got Reagan. Then we have. Uh, There was the Falkland War, then there's the the miners crisis and all those strikes. And we have a huge amount of unemployment and poverty and also Greenham Common. We thought we were going to die in a nuclear war. So what was it like for you at 16? Did you stay on at school and go on to college at that stage or did you leave at 16?
1: No, no, no. um, And actually, um, Damon and Dean, who were both in Galaxy 500 and I'm married to Damon and we've been making music ever since. Uh, We were all in high school together. They were a year older than me. Right. Um, But no, um, in New York. And then we all ended up going to college together, too. Um, And so, uh, but we were all going to, you know, the all-ages shows that were held on Saturday afternoons and, um, you know, listening to music. And I, there was no band on the horizon for us at that point but um yeah it was yeah you know. <laughs> yes
0: so you did you say, so you were still at college or sixth form i don't know it wasn't sixth form was it but it's we were in high
1: like, school till we you're in the u.s you're in high school till 18 right. and then you go to college
0: um so you, so you only finished the college period about 86 was it 87
1: yeah 86
0: Right. I finished
1: 86, Damon and Dean finished in 85.
0: Right, okay.
1: So then, and then cause... we didn't start Galaxy 500 till like 87.
0: Right. What's so again? it was
1: after college. So we, I mean, it was funny because when we first came to the UK, um, we were sort of old to be a band that was just starting out because so many people in the UK were, you know, in high school or just out of high school or, you know, you know in yes. their teens still. And we were in our early 20s. yeah. So. That is,
0: yeah, I guess that at that stage, sometimes it is a bit like that, isn't it? But you all looked so fresh faced. <laughs> I know. I was talking to kind of a, a couple of people who were, they were like, then it was a guy called Richard Hell from the Doctors of Madness, and he was like 20, 25 when punk kind of happened. And it was a bit like I was over the, you know, he said he felt like he was over the hill. And I think right. <laughs> he felt like it was, you know, but he had been in bands most of that early 70s. So he said, all mm-hmm. the people who came to see us, you know, they were the people who went and formed the Sex Pistols and the Clash and mm-hmm. the Slits and people like that. But um, he mm-hmm. just felt, but I think indie pop's a bit different. because I. So 83, I think one of the most interesting years, because 83 to 87 are the years of the Smiths, which I kind of think have a massive influence on my life and a massive influence in music during that 70, uh, 80s period. Did 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 you start picking up on the kind of indie pop world that was kind of coming from the UK?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, we definitely knew about it. And we were we were listening to it. We weren't listening to the Smiths, um I think so much as other people. Um, I was, and I was also listening, um, um, Someone's trying to think, like, which year this was during college. like we were listening we were listening to um You know, like public image, and um I think just. Yeah, it was just different. Yes. I think it's like, I mean, Dean had an older brother that was in um, New Zealand still, and he was sending him tapes. So we were finding out things that way, too.
0: Um, there was the... So there was that but... post-punk scene, wasn't there, of um, public? Yeah, emerging.
1: and like, you know, we were like Per Ubu, and, and also a lot of the things that were happening in America, like the, you know um the Dream Syndicate and and the and uh, you know the feelies and so there was the whole um indie scene that was sort of happening here that we were you know going to those shows.
0: Yeah. Because there was the sort of was it New Paisley with people like Dream Syndicate and um, yeah. Green on Red as yeah, well, wasn't there? Yeah. And um those kind of bands like yeah Steve Wynn wasn't it really that, mm-hmm. I think that that all mm-hmm. sort of we were just very excited in the 80s. I couldn't believe how much good music there was because we had, obviously, the per, the thing that really shaped a lot of it was John Peel. I mean, he had this amazing show every evening, most evenings. Yeah. And he introduced us all to that kind of, in, you know, new music. But he'd been doing that
1: for years, finding amazing music. Yeah, I mean, things in the, you know... the the late 60s too?
0: Yes, he he was there sort of doing his kind of, uh, he was on pirate radio doing a show called The Perfume Garden. He had Mm -hmm. a very different voice then, which was quite funny. And then he sort of ended up in America, then he came back to the UK and had this sort of show. But He, you know, he was all into the 60s, but I think he was able, he then made that jump, unlike a lot of people, of listening to the next kind of wave of music that came along rather than going, no, that's not good music. This is rubbish. And like a lot of people get a bit caught out, even music journalists sort of, you know, have their period and they get a bit like, no, we don't really want the next generation to come along. And then they sort of become conservative. And um, bitter and twisted, really. Mm. But John but that, People sort of got, you know, like he liked the Damned and he liked the Ramones and, you know, he offended all his old listeners, but went with that kind of route. So it's interesting.
1: Mm. Yeah. And then they figured it out later that he, he still had good taste.
0: He did have good taste. That was, that was a, so we had John Peel, who was a great, you know, person to go to. And we had three week weekly music papers like the NME Melody Maker and Sounds, which again, you know, they just filled their content. So that was all good stuff. So when so when did you sort of find when did you get the bass guitar? When did that sort of appear in your life?
1: Um, it was in the spring of eighty seven. Um and then it was um that summer that we started rehearsing as a band and we recorded a cassette tape and then by the fall we were gigging
0: you were gigging were you kind of um at that because was it kramer who produced your first
1: not the first cassette tape no that was um i can't remember his name but it was uh, just a studio that we went to that you know was willing to record three songs um what? and we didn't go to kramer till later
0: right was that tugboat or was no that...
1: this was a cassette tape that was um the walking song right on the other side. it was like i think that it's now it's like on outtakes it, it never was none of those songs were ever on any of our albums
0: yes so and so we used you...
1: that to um get gigs and to um get played on college radio and then we made the tugboat single and we did the album and then you did the album. The rest, yeah. is beginning. Do you have the um, Do you have the Galaxy Five Hundred Oral History book? Have you seen that?
0: No, I haven't. Do you Has know about be? it. Good point. I've been caught out, haven't I? No. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there's when... a um, there's an oral history book which I think I don't know, maybe you would enjoy um, that just because I saved all the posters and ephemera because I did a lot of the design, um, and it, it was done about about ten years ago, maybe now um by mike mcgonigal and he interviewed um, three of us in the band and then all sorts of people that were there at the time and kramer and um so it's kind of you know it's kind of a great perspective because you get everyone's take on things so
0: oh that's fantastic it's not just
1: one person's point of view
0: narrative i know yeah it's so it's very... called
1: temperatures rising and
0: i will is band. it still available
1: yeah, yeah, it's and it was out of print for a long time, but um, it's back in print, and I know it's available overseas too. That's so you good. Find
0: it, I must, but... I must. Yes, yeah, my ever-expanding book collection. Yes. So, <laughs> did you? I mean, how did you settle on the sound of the band? I mean, where, what direction? Because it was kind. I suppose what was quite interesting as a, as a sort of a fan and listening to John Peel on hearing it here in Galaxy Five Hundred. I just wondered because there was sort of certain you know people at that time who were doing something a bit more different than the yeah. I mean, I don't know, the Cure, the Smiths or, you know, things like that. You know, there was all, like all those bands like the June Brides and the Wolfhounds. And then but then we had people like, you know, the Copto Twins and Dead Can Dance. And then I suppose a little bit everything but the girl. But yeah, you you brought a quite a different quality to the indie scene, didn't you?
1: I think I mean, we just. You know, we didn't set out to say like we didn't decide our sound in advance. It was just what we could all play and what we you know aspirationally we wanted to you know be like you know it's like every band you have all your heroes you want we want to sound like the velvet underground or we want to sound like you know the feelies and we also love you know Be happening or we also love the clash you know so it you, you know everyone brings all their influences and then you just play what you can. And, and then, but going to Kramer was certainly, you know, a, a, a hugely shaped our sound because he, um, he did step back and say, I want to give this band a certain sound and he pushed it in one direction and, you know, added all the reverb and, um, you know, his sort of very, particular way of recording and of asking us to record and and being it definitely you know it shaped it. But it wasn't like we had, oh, we know what the sound should be from the beginning, but right. I don't know if it, if any band, you know, I mean, maybe some are more calculating and they do, but we didn't,
0: yes. I went to see an exhibition that was in Manchester. It was factory records, and there was that <laughs> there was a letter from Ian Curtis. Um, and he was furious about the sound of his, of the album, you know, so he wrote this, you know, blistering letter saying, you know, Martin Rushmore sort of, really? if, you know, what, is what did this he want
1: thing? it to sound like?
0: It, not like they did, you know, I don't, and I think even Stephen, the bassist, a uh, drummer was like, a bit like, oh, no, that's not what we want to be like at all. Really? You know, what, what have they done to us, you know, and Founders. then it was like. So it's kind of, it was kind of interesting that, you know, but yeah, Ian Curtis's letter was like really, you know, he he was really on a rant, you know, he was right letters of complaint he had almost, uh, you know, this is a disaster, you know, what have you done? And uh, obviously, you know, suddenly realised everyone liked it and the band suddenly went, "Mm, perhaps we'll like it as well. So it it was kind of interesting how they they went from being a bit disappointed to going, oh, okay, that's Joy Division. So, you know, their sound was very much... um, yeah, somebody else had sort of given them a bit of a different vibe.
1: Well, shall we talk a little bit about what's been going on since?
0: Yes, Let's <laughs> talk
1: about what's going on. How since. have you been since nineteen eighty three?
0: Eighty three,
1: yeah, right, not, since nineteen eighty seven. Nineteen eighty, yeah, Well, I
0: guess. Well, with the band, then, did you? I mean, was that sort of? I mean, just briefly, then, did you want to? I mean, can you remember much about your John Peel sessions and where they were happening and stuff like that? You mean which studios? Yeah, or did you have the famous Dale Griffith who came along? And um, can you remember much about those sessions?
1: I think we had him when we came back and we did some Peel sessions in a band called Magic Hour that we were in um, for a while after Galaxy 500 and before we started doing our duo work, which David and I were... um, basically the rhythm section in that band, which is was much more of like a um, experimental sort of post-rock psychedelic band. Yes. Um, and we did the Peel sessions and I think Bell was there. I don't think he was, I can't remember. It would definitely be on the Peel reissues <laughs> on the information. I don't think he was there in the galaxy. 500. Right. And did you- maybe he was. And Okay, I'm the wrong person to ask. Yes, I'm sure you can find out. <laughs> Don't I will find out. But well, sometimes... I, he was, remember, there at one of the Peel sessions that we did because we we did we did like three, I think, over the years. And um, I just remember it was sort of really thrilling to be, you know, at the BBC doing one. It felt so iconic. It was.
0: And was that and that that late kind of eighties period? Did you because from here it looks like you started a publishing. Company up as well, exact change. So mm-hmm. were you just able to sort of balance lots of different projects at the same time?
1: That's what we've always done. And it was that a lot of our friends were starting record labels, um, small record labels, and doing either reissues or new um um, you know, new bands. And we weren't interested so much in doing that, but there were a lot of books that we thought were amazing books. Um that were out of print and Damon was in graduate school um, in literature at the time that we started Galaxy 500. And I was in architecture school, but I was doing graphic design also. And we were like, why don't we basically start a small label, but put out books that we think are worthwhile. Right. I mean, you know, at the time it was like, people were like, can you really do this? Can you really, are you really dedicated to being in a band and have this publishing company? Like it was definitely, feel a little bit with suspicion like are you not serious about your music but I mean what's interesting is now um everyone does so many things and it's not such a weird thing to be a musician and also be interested in literature and you
0: know yes well I think most so, people were... but
1: at the time it definitely was sort of people in the music industry were a little like nervous like what what are you doing
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes I mean did um I mean, with the, the experience of that period with the band, did you, was it, because most bands do have a kind of five year narrative, don't they? They have that kind of the honeymoon period, then they have the first record. And in the UK, you know, like John Peel Show and then a couple of releases and then by the third album, it's all kind of started to not sort of continue that much. I mean, five years seem to be the, the you know, the the kind of great length. Did, mm. did you feel quite a relief when the band finished in the end? Was that kind of, or were you a bit surprised?
1: No, I think um, I, you, I guess you need to read the oral history. Yeah. But um, no, it was it was traumatic and is upsetting and disappointing. But you know, like things that happen that are like that at the time, um, you know, you can look back on it and it, um, it was probably a good thing. So
0: yes. You, I mean, when the 90s sort of trundled on for us, you know, there was this kind of, um, in the UK, I suppose there was that that kind of, with a lot of bands, they kind of had that, especially the indie bands that I uh, loved, the kind of the introduction of Ecstasy came along, which kind of blew a lot of kind of the music scene changed and then the Seattle grunge scene. And it wasn't only, it was a few years later when Britpop came along that suddenly there was like, okay, guitar bands are back again. So when you formed Magic Hour, Did you feel like that was quite a nice kind of, um, yes, kind of time to sort of regroup musically and sort of start another project?
1: Well, I mean, you know, the breakup was with Galaxy 500 was such that Damon and I thought we just weren't going to play music anymore because, you know, we were like, all right, that was so crushing. And we had not set out to um, be musician uh you know be in the band it was sort of ha- happened and we we loved it but we we're like well we can do other things and you know we were on our way to doing other things so maybe we should just continue and do those things so we uh thought we retired from the music business Yes, <laughs> but um kramer tempted us back in the studio and then we decided we the band had ended in such a bad way that we had never really said goodbye to the music business on our own terms. And so we decided to do the first Damon and Naomi record, what we thought was first and last one. Um, Kramer really was very supportive and convinced us to do that. And we had all these songs that we had been writing for the next Galaxy 500 album that never happened. Um, So we were like, okay, one more record. And and, uh, Kramer was like, you should call yourselves Damon and Naomi because people are always saying to me, what happened to Damon and Naomi? And this was going to be our swan song to the music business. And we went and made that and we discovered we really liked playing music. Um, and at the same time, these um, friends who were musicians and they had a band called Crystallized Movements, they lost their rhythm section and they said to us, oh, would you guys sub for some of our shows? And we were at the point where we were like, you know, that would just would be funny because crystallized movements was such different music. It yeah. was you know, so like 20 minute psychedelic jams. And we were like, why not? That would be fun. Like that's so unlike us. But we were at the moment, we were listening to a lot of can, a lot of um, noise, a lot of, you know, really extended, extended psychedelic music. And we were, so it sort of was like, it, it suited what wasn't, what we were listening to. And so we started playing with them and it was just really fun and you know we hadn't been looking to be in a band. And it really, you know Wayne in that band was the songwriter and we were really like the rhythm section and it was just really fun for us and we learned so much and it was great. Um you know the hard part was that Galaxy 500 fans were very disappointed sometimes and Precise Movement's fans were equally disappointed sometimes. <laughs> so you know um it was and it was sort of free kind of the whole post-rock thing so yes. people didn't really get it <laughs> and so it was really hard i mean i think you know now you, you know we're, we still feel really proud of that and we still are you know incredible friends with kate and wayne that uh, um who've gone on to have uh, another band called the major stars um but uh Yes, but it was an interesting moment, and um, I don't... Did I answer the question? Now I'm like, what was the question? I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, it it did. It it was that kind of, yeah, because a lot of people, there's... Yeah, they often have a little bit of a a thump. You know, I I spoke to quite a few people who spend a year sort of almost a bit traumatised after that music moment where they've been in a band and they don't know what they're doing, and...
1: Oh, yeah, because it's like your identity, you know? It's like someone you you're now you're like ex that band and you're yeah. being like of that band and it, it's like a part of your identity that's all of a sudden just like whipped out from under you and it's a you know and it's not only your living but it's your way of of expressing yourself and it's um and especially if you are not a front person in the band um people assume that you know you didn't have any necessarily to do with the writing of the songs or... yes
0: I know you know because a few bands I spoke to as well suddenly they had a massive tax bill at the end of it and then went oh my god so we, we're we not only not in a band we know our minus money and then they had to sell all their instruments and have nothing you know and oh yes I didn't buy a house during that period or didn't get anything and and almost kind of wandering around the streets, you know, feeling almost homeless. And um, well, we, yeah, we, it's...
1: we were very lucky not to be in that situation. So, that, you know, we, it... we, we were. We were...
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's kind of it is just difficult. I think it's kind of harder than you expect. And I suppose that's why a few people, you know, kind of get a little bit bruised. And it does take a few a few years or decades to then sort of. Kind of revisit,
1: I like other... your, your British understatement. <laughs> <laughs> a very, a very British understatement of you,
0: yes. A little bruised, a little,
1: bruised. <laughs> a little
0: bit bruised and traumatized by it. Yeah, I know it's kind of, it is kind of, yeah. I didn't quite appreciate just what it's like, and I do remember, um. There was a film by the, uh, about the Chills, you know, Martin was it Martin Phillips from the Chills from New Zealand, and there was a, someone made a film, and I think he he was a bit amazed when he heard the other members of the band talking about their experience, because I don't think he'd ever realised what other people had gone through, and was and it, you know I he, I think it was you know. He, I wouldn't say he enjoyed it but it made him appreciate you know like oh right okay that was I think one becomes so self self absorbed supposedly you know if you're the front person as well a bit that um the other people have never had that voice and then they've it's like oh that's okay that's interesting so yeah <laughs> it does it does so with the magic magic hour then you sort of you you were on a label twisted village weren't you at this stage
1: yeah which was a um that run by the the two guitarists and magic hour, the yeah. other, um, you know, it was interesting. It was a band of two couples and it was, it was fun. But at the same time, we, we had, you know, done the first Damon and Naomi album with Kramer and we discovered, you know, we really still loved writing songs and playing music. So even while we were in magic hour, we were still, we started, um, working as Damon and Naomi. And the big question for us was how to perform live because You know, we were both very comfortable um, as a rhythm section. And I was comfortable playing bass and maybe singing once in a while, but I was super shy about it. And Mm. Damon loved playing drums. And even though he always played guitar and we always wrote songs, we were not, we didn't think of ourselves as comfortable as front people. And we also couldn't imagine well, then who's going to be playing everything else unless we get other musicians, but we didn't want to like higher musicians you know we, we felt like it had to be organic and so we just sort of started working as a duo and I started playing more keyboards which let me sing more and I started sort of I feel like I sort of been creeping towards the front of the stage for about 30 years yes. you know and um it discovered I really enjoyed singing and um the and and so did Damon so you know, now we've been at the front of the stage for a long time, but it certainly, it wasn't um, something that we, it was something we sort of had to convince ourselves that we could be comfortable doing.
0: Yes. So luckily you didn't ever lose your love of playing music. No. Which is quite. Well, well for about six months. Yes. <laughs> six months you did. But six then you develop all your other skills, but being, you know, cause I was watching some of your videos that you've made in the last years so when did that sort of um start to develop it was around 2010
1: or 2011 and I've just always taken photographs and you know even and done design and you know a lot of my photographs were you know we use on galaxy 500 artwork and um I had a camera that all of a sudden had video capability in it because you know everyone's uh, cameras all of a sudden had that and I was like Oh wow, this is so interesting how um, it's like photography over time. And you know, I always love film, but I never really thought about doing it. Yeah. But all of a sudden there I had it in my camera and I started experimenting with it. And I just thought, you know, this would be a great way to work with other musicians, another way of collaboration, which was something I always enjoyed playing with other musicians. I was like, oh, well, we could collaborate on creating videos together. And so I just started by asking, you know, friends like, do you need a music video? Can I do it? And you know, so many people, you know, like Richard Youngs, I don't know if you know his work. He's fantastic. And, yes. um, you know, I was like, okay, sure. And I, so I just did it. And then I started, you know, approaching labels and um, saying, okay, I want to do this for real. And I started just a crash course of teaching myself, you know, how to do it. And um, I love doing it. I really do love it's a wonderful way of collaborating. Yes. Uh, I love doing these sort of portraits of these other musicians and sort of getting to inhabit their band for, you know, a few weeks. And then, you know, okay, you go on tour by yourself. And I'll see you. So yeah, and then that sort of led me to doing this new film, which is just actually Premiering tomorrow night, which is why I have been so busy, oh, not been wow. able to <laughs> find the time to talk to you because it's premiering tomorrow night, and then we're actually going on tour um, at the end of next week with Meg Baird. Um, if, if you don't know her records, you should definitely look them definitely.
0: up. Right, buy me um, it, because 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 with your with your video um with your videos they're quite you know you've worked with a lot of very diverse people and I was thinking what was that like sort of suddenly being in the same space as some some of these kind of people that you might have been listening to their records I was just thinking of Lee from um Sonic Youth and suddenly having to get
1: oh oh but I've known Lee for years I mean I met Lee back at Kramer studio in you know the 80s the early 80s so it, it was he's an old friend Right. So it was not um, anything daunting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. I
1: mean, I mean it would be you know it would be fun you know yeah tell uh, tell tell Brian Eno if he wants a video to call me and then I will be terrified. Yes, well that's <laughs> <very interesting. laughs> but No, I mean Lisa an old friend, so it was very comfortable.
0: And what about new artists? Because there was was it Sharon Van Hitch Sharon Van Etten. Yes,
1: yeah. we're just you know. Um, how did I? I uh, we just had we had friends in common, and I liked her music, and you know, it, someone suggested I do it. Yeah, so yes. it's been, been a variety of of ways. And so,
0: when I sort of watched the trailer for the film, which is coming out, this is never be a punching bag for nobody. Is this a story about Boston? East Boston. Boston. It's a part part of Boston. So where did you get this idea from?
1: Well, you have to watch the film. I'll have to watch the film. But I was actually scouting for a video location, and I stumbled on this boxing gym. And um, I thought this was the perfect place for – it was a fashion video I was shooting, and I asked if I could use it. And the older boxer that runs it was like, absolutely not get out of my gym, basically. And I was like, Oh, well, you know, can I look around? And then we started talking. And then he offered me a free class. And I was like, Oh, maybe if I take the free class, he'll let me use the gym. And then instead, (laughs) I became completely enamored with boxing and with the neighborhood. So it kind of was like my, you know, thinking I was going to be so clever and, and trick him into letting me use his gym as a location totally backfired and I ended up making a whole movie about his gym in the neighborhood and my taking up boxing which you know since you know our music is also kind of weirdly unexpected
0: yes that is quite that <laughs> because yeah I sort of watched it because I grew up sort of in uh, watching Rocky and sort of there was also a couple of films called um Uh, The one on Muhammad Ali and Ali um, Fraser, the...
1: uh, Oh, yeah, uh, Rumble in the Jungle.
0: Yeah, so When We Were Kings. When We uh, Were Kings,
1: right, right, right. That was it.
0: And then there was a follow-up, wasn't there, which were were quite amazing. Had you seen those films? I I mean, I just wondered if... if Well, I
1: mean, i seen Rocky like a long time ago, but, you know, no, I was not a boxing fan. In fact, I was actually, um, you know, scared of watching boxing and
0: violent. Yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't particularly want to watch it but I suppose there was that I was kind of fascinated when we were kings it was just the training and then this kind of so it's the
1: premiere tomorrow night but hopefully um, I'll be able to do a a live streaming event so you can hopefully be able to watch it then. God
0: that would be amazing so when did you start filming and and sort of writing this and how did you manage to sort of capture the narrative for it because it's quite you know, just seeing what you've done or just from a trailer, it looks like it was um, quite an epic piece of work. It was
1: a lot of work. I mean, I started in 2017 and it's the premiere now. Right. So and I've also been, you know, making records and there was a pandemic <laughs> and touring. And so, um, yeah, so it's pretty exciting. Um, it was a pretty organic process. Uh I didn't really know what I was setting out to make, but I just knew that I was really fascinated with the gym and um, fascinated with the neighborhood. And I got very interested in the history of activism in the neighborhood. Um, and I just kind of went into a little investigative rabbit hole and I discovered all these things and footage that had never been seen and um, met all these wonderful, interesting people. and.
0: Yes, well, it's it's always it's always good those neighborhood things. Actually, I do like them, and you know, I've I've sort of with age become a bit more obsessed with health. And so, you sticking now that you've done the film, are you still sticking with your kind of interest in boxing? Is that something? Yes, it's
1: very good. It's very very good. uh, Good exercise.
0: Yes, I would imagine your reflexes
1: and stamina and core
0: stability is
1: probably. Yes, yes, you know, we we old people we have to we have to worry about this thing balance. But, Core yes. muscle strain, you know. Get yeah. get you know, Get your get your exercise program together. Yes, and and do the plank.
0: But <laughs> Did you have you found that you're you're actually become have you have you sort of learned the techniques of boxing to appreciate it? Because there was was it Norman Mailer was talking about boxing. I remember that was part of that film when we were kings about sort of how to do a jab and how to throw a punch and you know and yeah, set, I'm trying Satan all take, the time
1: yeah just because but just because you understand these things uh, intellectually it doesn't mean your body can do it right it's like you're always trying you know it's like and did
0: did you bond and have a a lovely relationship with the the gym owner in the end
1: well i think you're just going to have to i'll have to see the movie and find out i'm not going to give it all away (laughs) (laughs) don't you don't you want me to spoil the film for you do you
0: no, well, kind of. but um, <laughs> well, I've only seen the trailer. So, so, so as an availability then, will it be one of these you can sort of pay and have it kind of streamed like, I don't know. I think
1: we're, what we're trying to figure out is a way to do a streaming event so that, you know, friends all over the world can tune in and see it at some point, and then um, maybe uh, it will hopefully be streaming at some point later so yes. that even if you can't attend that exact event, you can see it.
0: One day. I'd love to watch it. No, I do, because I love documentaries. I mean, I'm better on the documentary films than I am on sort of other types of films. So does that, because you've you've been prolific during your sort of um, the O years, haven't you? And into 2017 with, you know, with the band. Has that sort of been put on hold since sort of 17 until this film is out the way? Or have you still been making music? No,
1: well? no, we've been making music. We had a new album out last year, um, a Sky Record we did um, sort of, we recorded before the pandemic and we mixed it during it and wrote the lyrics during it. And um, yeah. And we've done some one-off shows, but this upcoming tour next week, um, which is why I should probably go soon. Cause I have to, rehearse. To, um, to go rehearse. Is um, really exciting um, because we haven't done like, I mean, it's only in Northeast, but. You know, it's a week of shows back on a small tour, and it's just very exciting with friends. Yeah. And if absolutely. you have not heard um, Meg Baird's new record, Furling, I really recommend you, you listen to it because maybe.
0: You well, I
1: would love, yes,
0: I'd love to. And do you ever have any plans of doing any shows in the UK, or is that just a little.
1: I hope so. Yeah. I mean, we always want to be doing shows in the UK. We just we don't have anything uh, on our schedule now, but um, we hope to be back there.
0: Yes well I, yeah. yes I'm, I'm so pleased yeah it's just you know so look thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this this has been great and um yes i'll look forward to sort of uh, watching the film actually when it's available because that'll be Okay nice. well yeah
1: so like you know you can sign up there's uh, there's like a on my on my uh, website neomivision.com like yes. oh, com. um there's a there's a page for the film and you can sign up um and there's a mailing list and then it, you'll get mails like when it becomes available
0: fantastic look i've subscribed already so <laughs> now, <yeah>. <laughs> okay <laughs> well, look have a great tour and a great thank premiere you. tonight tomorrow thank you. and um thank you yes thank you for your time and yes yes take care and all the best for this
1: great okay. lovely talking to
0: you take care thanks a lot okay bye 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 and that dear listener is the end of the interview or conversation. Anyway, a massive thank you to Naomi Yang for giving me the time. Um, as I said, she was, well, she probably said in that interview, um, yes, there's two websites that I'll um, direct you to, Damon and also naomivision.com as well. So uh, that's all good. If you want to contact me, David Eastall, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived interviews. Um, You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.